You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. This is Chris Costa, the Executive Director at the International Spy Museum. Today, we're joined by best-selling author and journalist Peter Bergen. Peter is a notable CNN national security analyst and vice president of Global Studies and Fellows New America. Peter is also a professor of practice at Arizona State University and the author or editor of seven books about national security and terrorism. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Chris. It's great to have you at the Spy Museum today. We're here to discuss your recent book titled Trump and His Generals, The Cost of Chaos, due to hit the streets for the public on December 10th. Congratulations, then, on another book. Thank you, Chris. So your book covers an awful lot of foreign policy ground. For our audience in particular, I think there will be a great deal of interest on a book that provides greater clarity on the administration's relationship with the national security establishment. So let's start right there. What was your aim in writing the book? Well, Chris, thanks for having me uh, on the on the podcast. Uh, you know, I started writing this book. Uh, it was going to be a book about the fight against ISIS. Um, and over time, and I, you know, I expected, like a lot of people, that Hillary Clinton would win and that it would be this kind of history of the Obama-Hillary-Clinton-ISIS fight. And then uh, my editor said, why don't you write a book about Trump? And his and sort of broader than just ISIS. I mean that that was kind of the initial focus was counterterrorism, but and that's of course my area of expertise was counterterrorism. But this book is broader, uh, which I'm happy about because counterterrorism is you know part of a broader discussion of national security. No, that's exactly right. And you answered my second question because I thought <laughs> this book was going to be largely about counterterrorism, but as you said, it's it's broader than that. So you trace the early tension between leaders in the administration, leaders like General McMaster, globalists, and you contrasted them with American first proponents like Steve Bannon. Can you unpack that conflict, which almost seems ideological? Well, um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, in my view, and I say that, as I say in the book, I mean, C. Bannon was the smartest and most well-read of the America First faction in the mm-hmm. White House, and HR is the smartest, you know, most well-read internationalist. And, you know, they basically had, they, they, I, I, they were not fans of each other, I think is a polite way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was based, you know, really on ideas. It wasn't necessarily so much based on personalities. Uh, Steve Bannon, uh, th- you know, was the wing of the Republican Party. He said we're overextended, we're overcommitted. Uh, we need to pull back, you know, whether it's in Afghanistan or, or Iraq or elsewhere. And H.R. McMaster, who of course had fought in both in in Iraq at, uh, on two occasions uh, and also had served in Afghanistan, uh, had a very different view. And I mean, I, th- I think H.R. McMaster's view was pretty much the same view. But more, maybe more strongly held and, and more strongly contested, that Jim Mattis had, that Rex Tillerson had, that Jim Kelly had, um, so many of the kind of key cabinet members uh, related to national security at the beginning. Except HR was kind of leading the charge, particularly when it, the, 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 in the book, what the, what the book covers in detail is the long drawn out question about what to do in Afghanistan, because mm-hmm. President Trump had said before he'd been even elected, let's get the hell out. We spent too much money, it's a waste of time. Um, and that was one point of view which was Steve Bannon certainly shared. Or Steve Bannon wanted to maybe move to a more of a counterterrorism mission, sort of using the CIA. Eric Prince, who of course used to own Blackwater, came forward with a plan to bring in contractors, and that might be all under the aegis of the CIA. The Pentagon was really not at all happy about that idea because they didn't want contractors running around Afghanistan killing people, uh, nor in fact would the Afghan government happy with that idea. Uh, and the idea eventually kind of died a death. But there were multiple uh, meetings in the um, in the Situation Room to discuss this. And it, you know, if you recall, there was supposed to be a decision about this in May 2017. It didn't happen until August of 2017 because That's there was right. so much dispute about this. And much of the dispute was kind of wasn't really being made public. But um, uh, one of the key key chapters in the book is this is this dispute about what to do in Afghanistan, which in the end, you know, the president delivered a speech uh, on um, in mid-August in which he said, look, we're going to make a long-term commitment to Afghanistan. We're not going to put a date certain on our withdrawal, which is one of his criticisms of President Obama, who announced a surge of troops into Afghanistan on December 1st, 2009 at West Point, uh, but then also announced withdrawal dates. Which and, and so the news became not the surge of troops, but the withdrawals. And that's what the Taliban focused on, Pakistan focused on, the Afghans focused on. So so at the end of the day, I think, uh, in my view, the president got to the right place on Afghanistan, uh, but it was a pretty messy fight along the way. And the book opens up with not an argument about Afghanistan, but a pivotal meeting that happened in the tank. Yeah. Can you talk about that meeting and why was it so important? I, what I say in the book is the meeting which took place on July 20th, 2017 in the tank, which is the same place that FDR and George Marshall basically planned World War II, uh, the t- in, uh, towards the end of World War II, um, was the pivotal meeting of the Trump presidency. Why so? Well, because the basically the debates between the internationalists or so-called globalists and the American firsters uh, kind of really crystallized during that. It's only, you know, relatively... Trump was only you know eight months into his presidency, 
um, seven months into his presidency. And, uh, you know, he, he b on one side, the Gary Cohn, who was a chief economics advisor, and Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson wanted to present, um, you know, kind of what the United States is doing around the world, free trade, lots of, uh, you know, 190,000 troops around the world. You know, basically their view was this all helps America, the United States. And on the other side was somebody like Steve Bannon, uh, who and the president himself ultimately, who just basically didn't agree with this and feels that felt like the alliances like NATO were kind of free riding off the United States and that were too overcommitted and that you know our trade imbalance with China makes a really makes a difference to our economy and and so there was kind of a I, I would say a pretty uh, explosive meeting in the tank. Uh, well, Jim Mattis presented the U.S. military posture. Rex Tillerson presented the kind of um, U.S. alliance posture. Gary Cohn presented the U.S. trade picture. And the President Trump basically said, this is exactly what I don't want, which is all, all these commitments around the world and we're overextended. And Steve Bannon kind of chimed in and it was it got pretty ugly. And you suggested that the romance, I think that was the word you used, ah. seemed to be over, the romance between the generals and the others. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that was the beginning of the end. Now, President Trump was the only room, person in the room who was elected, and he felt very strongly that he got elected uh, because of issues like China, because of issues like uh, the endless wars the United States is fighting. Um, and, and I think that from that, point he, from that point forward, he laid down a pretty clear marker um, that he, you know, that he, he wasn't going along with what, after all, what had been a fairly the consensus between Republicans and Democrats uh, for many decades. And and that's all fair. Let's go back then before. Yeah. So you started off with the tank meeting. The narrative yeah. is intense and and it's detailed, but you also lay the groundwork in the following chapter chapters by by going back to before the president was elected. Yeah. You make it clear in the book that President Trump's campaign really played off of fear, fear of terrorism, fear of yeah. another 9-11. So talk a little bit about well, that. Well, you know, if you go back to the campaign, uh, this was in, when ISIS was at its height. You had 130 people killed in Paris by ISIS in 2015. You had uh, the attack in um, San Bernardino in the United States where 14 people were killed by ISIS-inspired terrorists. You have the attack in Orlando, Florida by Omar Mateen in 2016 in which 49 people are killed at a gay nightclub in Orlando by an ISIS-inspired terrorist. And um, not since 9-11 had more, when, the poll, when polling asked the question, Do you, are you concerned that you or your family members might be targeted by terrorists? Uh, the numbers were the highest they've been since 9-11. So, I mean, people react to the news that's around them. I'm sure right. if you took that poll right it's now. quite remarkable. It was, there was a lot of concern about yeah. it. And uh, I think, you know, President Trump, uh, I say in the book it's, it would be hard to imagine President Trump being elected without 9-11 because I think, you know, this is one of the hinge events of American history. ISIS comes back. He is able to, you know, basically respond to that and, when people, uh, when exit polling was done during the election, after the election, for those who were concerned about terrorism, they voted for President Trump at much higher levels than those who voted for Hillary Clinton. 
and implicit in all of this is the idea that the Obama administration made some mistakes as well. I mean, the idea of red lines, the idea of prolonged White House NSC debates on tactical issues on top of fear played into yeah, I mean, the I argument. Did, yeah, I mean, certainly President Obama made a mistake. on. I think his Syria policy didn't make a lot of sense because he, he – I think President Obama was very concerned about what the day after the if we overthrew Assad, what would Assyria look the day after? And yeah, you know, that's a good question in 2012 to ask. But as every year went on, we know what look, we know what this looks like now, right? Which is you know, the, it's it's kind of the largest refugee population since World War Two, you know, half a million dead, ISIS. You know, it 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 got worse and worse. So I think you know. M- President Obama didn't really want to make a decision on Syria, um, and um, the place got, you know, it, it got worse. It didn't get better. Um, and then, of course, he, he didn't respond with the red line on the chemi- use of chemical weapons, which I think, you know, was, I, I think he, they would make, the Obama administration would make the argument, well, they got all these chemical weapons taken out of Syria as a result. Um, but clearly, Assad continued to use chemical weapons, and and President Trump, to his credit, did respond. And despite all of that, though, you also outline the first very collisions between the national security establishment and the intelligence community, and that happened on Russian election interference. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I mean, well, that story is well known. Um, And I sort of, but, you know, I think, you know, there was a concern. I think the meeting at Trump Tower was on January 6, 2017, so 14 days before the inauguration, which was Jim Comey, and the FBI director, and John Brennan, the CIA director. And on, on the Trump side, it was uh, Mike Flynn, who was then the national security advisor, and Tom Bossert and, and, and the president, in which they laid out you know, that they, the consensus view of the, international, the intelligence community is that Russia had interfered with the 2016 election. Um, and... Um, yeah, there was some concern. I w- Trump released a pretty conciliatory statement after that meeting, essentially saying, "I'm not disagreeing with that assessment. Let's move on," kind of thing. I mean, I, I think there was the worry amongst some of the transition, Trump transition team, that if there wasn't a conciliatory statement, things could really blow up. Right, and despite that as well, the inauguration takes place yeah. in the first national security priority issues really fell back to your area of expertise, and that was on counterterrorism. And you and I have talked about it elsewhere, but again, it's worth mentioning that your book really chronicles the idea of continuity on the counterterrorism front. I think it's worth, again... Well, that is definitely worth underlining. So Mike Leiter was the head of the National Counterterrorism Center under Bush, and he was held over by Obama, served served with distinction. The same thing happened with the with the Obama team um, and and the Trump team. I mean, Nick Rasmussen, who entered the White House, I think a week after 9/11, uh, became the head of the National Counterterrorism Center uh, on uh, under Obama, and then was held over by President Trump for at least a year. Um, and um, Josh Geltzer, who is senior director for counterterrorism, was held over uh, by the Trump team for several months. You. You were part of that, of course. Um, and so, but this is, so what I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say here is that I think there's, 
there's kind of a lot of bipartisan consensus about what to do about terrorism pretty much. There's kind of a playbook. In fact, one of the themes I say in the book is there's a lot of, there are more commonalities and differences between President Obama and President Trump when it comes to counterterrorism. I mean, the playbook is very similar. It's drones, it's special forces, it's cyber operations, it's no big footprint. You know, and, and that, and whoever the president, next president in 2020 or 24, he or she's going to follow the same playbook because it's sort of. Hope so, right. Yeah, I mean, there's just no reason there's like. It works. It works. I mean, it, it, of course, you can make mistakes, and, but it basically works. And so Trump didn't, you know, you were in charge of the counterterrorism policy making for Trump, and you, your strategy, I, you know, is not dissimilar to the to the Obama team and in fact you actually called out neo-nazi groups which I think was the first time that a counterterrorism strategy had done uh, and, and rightly so yeah I think it's and you and I again have talked about that as well your your book does a great job of really reinforcing those points on counterterrorism yeah. the continuity and the thought that went by you know behind the strategy and then something happened in very short order general flynn was fired yeah and all of a sudden we have a break in national security advisors and there was a lot of uncertainty yeah it, not in counterterrorism i would argue but there was a lot of uncertainty in other policy areas and you wrote in great detail on the things that mcmaster brought to the NSC at a vulnerable time. Right. Well, I think H.R. McMaster brought a lot of process and order. And, uh, you know, he's a military guy. He uh, is a very disciplined guy and a hardworking guy. And he uh, saw his model as Brent Scowcroft, who's the only uh, person to serve two, on two different administrations as National Security Advisor. And the Scowcroft model is basically you, you know, you tee up all the different options for the president. You, you don't necessarily put your thumb on the scale, but you kind of give the president the option, the options that are that are available. Uh, but HR, as I say in the book, didn't have a particularly good relationship with Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense, or with Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, who had a very tight relationship. Um, and they regarded, it seems, HR McMaster as sort of an interloper. Um, and they operated kind of above him and, and kind of, they had, they had weekly breakfast meetings at the State Department, and you know, H.R. McMaster began referring to them as the Club of Two, because you know he was kind of being excluded. And Tillerson came out of the Exxon culture, which is you know basically there's a the, it's there's a, something that, the, the God part at Exxon where like you just he decides and people execute. Yeah, you just <laughs> a decree. It's actually it's interesting. It's actually more militaristic than the military in a way, right? Because you can. That's a fair <laughs> point. That's exactly because people right. will just you know you hand down the decree and people and that and that's not really certainly not how the State Department works. And then Jim Mattis, you know, had, had he just you know he was a retired four star, and H R McMaster was a serving three star, and he would refer to him in meetings as Lieutenant General H R McMaster, mm. and the people in the meeting understood that to mean you are a three star general, uh, and, you know. And I'm a four star, and that, you know, they, so, you know, and it's, I, it's hard for me to like disentangle why why this relationship didn't work that well, but it didn't. Um, there were there were a lot of tensions, but, you know, leaving aside the question about the personal, on a lot of the big issues, HR, Rex Tillerson, Jim Mattis all agreed. They were in alignment. 
take the Iran deal. Yeah. They were just, they weren't, none of them would have said this was the greatest deal in history, but they were all looking for ways to, to kind of stay in the deal, whether that was through, um, you know, working with European allies to see if there might be a side deal to the main deal. Uh, they wanted to preserve it. On Afghanistan, they were in broad agreement. I think you know, HR was certainly leading the charge, but they, to make a you know long-term commitment, put in more troops. Um, on Russia, you know they were on in Russia. They were out. yeah. I mean, and, and in fact, if you actually look at what the Trump administration did on Russia, I think it had a pretty robust policy in some ways. I mean, we don't uh, you know they expelled diplomats after the poisoning of the the attempted poisoning of the Russian spy in the UK. They gave more aid, military aid to Ukraine. Uh, so there was, as uh, the Trump administration itself took a fairly hard line on Russia, even if President Trump was saying something different. So how, so you just mentioned Iran, Russia, Afghanistan. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more about those policy areas. My question is, what about then the travel ban. You spent a lot of time talking yeah. about that. And I learned a lot from reading through that <laughs> narrative. It well, was you very know, helpful having well, the Well, you know, it, it was obviously a campaign promise, so um, President Trump felt he had to deliver it on it. I felt as a as a counterterrorism measure, I was uh, I didn't think it was that helpful because um, it, you know, uh, it's just a fact that the people who are conducting these the people who are conducting attacks in the United States are overwhelmingly American citizens. They're not coming from overseas. They're here. And they're also being radicalized by the Internet, which travel ban doesn't really affect. So I, I thought it was kind of a solution in search of a problem that wasn't really the real issue. And, uh, and, and also that it was subject to some legal challenges, which it was. It went to the Supreme Court before it was upheld. And yet the generals were there. That's what I was trying to. Oh well, to okay, well, one thing, of course, is you know, that, that, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. the 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 first round, the, there were seven countries on the list that included Iraq. While H.R. McMaster had served in Iraq not once but twice between the first Gulf War and also during the the, the second Gulf War, um, and you know, Jim Mattis had led the Marines going into Baghdad. And they, they both felt very, very strongly that Iraq should be taken off, not because Iraq was the Iraqi Counterterrorism Service, which is essentially their special forces, which we, the United States, have trained. They were doing all the dying and all the fighting against ISIS. It made no sense. In fact, to, to show you how, how in ridiculous this was, the four-star general who's in charge of the Iraqi Counterterrorism Service tried to get a visa to come visit his family in the United States during this period and couldn't get in, even though he was the main our main ally fighting ISIS. And we weren't really fighting ISIS. Yes, we were we were enabling the fight. We were not, you know. So eventually, Mattis and, and Tillerson went to Trump. H.R. McMaster, you know, persuaded. There was people like uh, Attorney General Sessions was, he was kind of an immigration hardliner. Yeah, he relented. You made that point. He right? relented. Yeah. But, but, you know, they, uh, there, was, there was some real pushback on both sides, and eventually it got off, and that was the right decision. And along with that decision, since we're talking about ISIS and Iraq, yeah. then you transitioned into your discussion of Syria, and you, you thought and you expressed that, that was a high watermark, really, Syria. Some of the decisions made yeah, on Syria, I think that arming I, the Kurds. Yeah, I think, 
A, responding to the red line, you know, A, responding when Assad used the chemical weapons in 2017 and 2018 with strikes. I mean, they weren't, they weren't crippling to the Assad regime, but they were strikes. And B, you know, the Trump administration, the Obama administration had put a lot of um, limits on what we could do in Syria, and the Trump administration took those away. So there was only, I think the Trump administration only allowed three helicopters at any given time which makes no, made no sense because you know two of them are somebody sleeping, somebody's got mechanical problems. I mean, it's like yeah. it's not enough. So they took those limits off. They had also capped the number of troops at 500. That went up to 2,000. Um, they also had had a long debate about whether or not to arm the Kurds. The debate went on so long that the Obama team basically punted it to the Trump team, who then started arming the Kurds. And there's no way. I mean, you're the military. You're a, a you know, military officer. There's no way. United States could have taken Raqqa without a ground force, and we weren't prepared to put in correct. tens of thousands of American soldiers that we take a city like Raqqa. And we, our ground force was the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is basically the Kurds. And the reason the Obama team had debated it for so long is it was going to piss off the Turks if we armed the t- Kurds. And in the end, you know, the Trump team made the decision it was worth that, and uh, that, that's what happened. They, the Syrian Democratic Forces took um, took Raqqa and took you know, defeated ISIS with our, with the United States help. We'll be right back after this. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. And it's so interesting because you talked about Syria being a high watermark. And again, I don't remember the chronology. It's in the book, and it's yeah. very detailed, and it's absolutely on the mark. But you talk about the House of Saud, and you uh, talk about another opportunity to really address areas that we hadn't worked on for some time, because yeah. certainly President Obama didn't have that kind of relationship with the Saudis. So there's MBS. There's the first uh, trip to the region by the president. Yeah. Talk a little bit about oh, that. Well, and just before we get to that, I want to say this thing, which I don't think I do say in the book, but I think it's true, which is I think, you know, ar- arming and training the counterterrorism service in Iraq and arming and training the, the Syrian Democratic Forces is likely to be regarded as one of the most successful U.S. special forces mission, you know, in history. Basically, we, you know, there was a very limited number of U.S. casualties in this fight and uh, it went very well but getting so the house of saud mbs mohammed bin salman the crown prince who's really the power in saudi arabia well you know we the trump administration placed a big bet on mohammed bin salman and i think uh, that was a reasonable bet until the murder of jamal khashoggi because 
Mohammed bin Salman is doing a lot of good things. He's also doing a lot of bad things. And I think until Jamal Khashoggi's murder, it was possible to make the positive de- case and the negative case. But after the murder on October 2nd, 22nd, 2017, um, sorry, October 2nd, 2018, um, it became a lot harder to make the positive case. So the, what's the positive case? The positive case is he's really rolled back the religious police in Saudi Arabia. He's allowed women to drive. He's allowed women much greater latitude to work. He has, um, you know, kind of, he's he's trying to make, turn the clock back a little bit. In 79, the Saudis really started making, kind of proselytizing this Wahhabi form of Islam. All that is sort of, is either ending or is is being dialed back. Um, And also he has a plan for for the Saudi economy, which we can, you know, they, they can't rely on oil forever, and he does have a plan, Vision 2030, to kind of... Um, and so that's great, and he's a younger guy. When he first came to the White House, he was 32. Um, so that's the positive side. The, the negative side is that, you know, he continues to put people in jail who, um, they're not even dissidents, they're just people, some of the women drivers activists he's put in jail uh, for no good reasons, claiming they're, getting, they're being financed by foreign countries it's perplexing really it's bizarre well i think in his view it's like i can give you you can't demand your rights right i can i i can if i give them to you that's fine but no one can demand anything so that that's i think his view um and you know then he the blockade of gutter which is after all the most important base in the middle in in, really outside the united states right now well talk about that i mean that seemed that happened really in the aftermath I yeah. think you talked in the book in great detail about the idea of uh, what seemed to be a green light. Well, it was certainly they took it to be. So May 20th, 2017, President Trump goes to Riyadh. It's his first overseas trip. And I think it's a kind of a high point uh, because, you know, Trump gave a speech that went down fairly well with the people in the room, which was pretty much the leader of every Muslim country, I think 56 countries. Um, he you know he got he got i was going to say wind and dine but he got <laughs> right. he, he got the red carpet treatment <laughs> he got the red carpet treatment um and 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 you know it was the first overseas trip now the the saudis took the warming up relation the, obama did not have a good relationship with the saudis partly mostly because of the iran nuclear deal and i think also temperamentally obama just they were not they just didn't really fit so the Saudis have been wanting to do something about Qatar for a long time. Now, the, getting into the backstory why that happened would take too long. But the point is, is that these Gulf states, you know, their they're family enterprises, so, you know, like probably when you really look back, it's like 20 years ago, some family member did somebody else. And, you know, th- there are some other reasons, but ultimately it's kind of like the perennial mass. frictions. Yeah, there's kind of yeah. like. And narcissism and minor differences. I mean, because at the end of the day, Qatar does have the largest American military base and the most important one, leading the fight against ISIS, leading the fight against the Taliban. It's the forward headquarters for Central Command. Um, you know, they have universities like Georgetown and Northwestern have, and Carnegie Mellon have campuses there. Um, and, you know, they're, it was puzzling. The people who, who pushed back on, against this blockade in the Trump administration were the people who knew the most about it, which is Rex Tillerson, who'd done giant deals with when he was uh, with Exxon, running Exxon with the, with the Qataris. They had the largest natural gas field in the world. 
which they share with Iran, um, and also um, Jim Mattis, who was who'd run CENTCOM, so he knew the importance of this base, and they they really pushed back, and eventually Trump actually changed his mind about this because I think it became clear that the Saudi claims that Qataris were supporting terrorism were sort of basically not really true. And um, over time, I think President Trump changed his mind about this and actually had a pretty warm meeting with the Emir of Qatar uh, a year after the blockade began. Uh, but the point is the blockade continues today. And I've spent a lot of time in Qatar. It doesn't, they, they just breeze past it, right? I mean, you, don't, you have to, it means that you can't fly into Qatar very easily because some of the airspace is cut off. But um, very resilient, aren't they? Yeah, the, I mean the they. they play, I mean we we were there together, right? Yes. So it, it 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 doesn't. I think they've kind of shrugged it off. But yeah. it, but it, but it goes to this narrative about Mohammed bin Salman, which he's very impulsive. I mean, so you know the 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 invasion of Yemen in 2015 by the Saudis was, you know, that has not gone well. You know, you've got Qatar. He kidnapped the Lebanese prime minister. Hariri for oh, effectively right. for two you weeks. You make reference to that. Yeah, yeah. he, um, you know, uh, and then he ordered or, you know, there's, there's a famous quote about the Archbishop of Canterbury by Henry II. And Henry II, which is of England, says, will anybody rid me of this turbulent priest? And his knights go and kill the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Canterbury Cathedral. So you don't need to say, I want you to go and kill Jamal Khashoggi. If you're Mohammed bin Salman, you just say, like, I want to, this guy dealt with. And you know, what does that mean that he is? Uh, you know, we probably won't. There's never. There's no direct order. But certainly, it's the intelligence community view that that Mohammed bin Salman sort of ordered this. It's certainly uh, a fact that many of the people who work for him were involved in the hit squad. Anyway, so after Jamal Khashoggi's death, I think the arguments about Mohammed bin Salman sort of like flipped, and it, it became much more about the negative case and the positive case. And that's where your narrative takes a turn, yeah. and you really talk about the idea that there was a gradual erosion of U.S. leadership, and you started to see it. Your analysis was in the Middle East, and uh, that's when, uh, for example, when um, the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem, yeah. that also uh, was, yeah. was made. And you thought that some norms were breaking down. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, norm. I mean, what, what's interesting to me, because having grown up in the UK, you know, in the UK, the constitution is all unwritten. A lot, you know, there's no written. We have a written constitution, but it turns out we have an unwritten constitution. I don't get into this in the book much, but part of the unwritten constitution is the president won't attack the CIA, the FBI, yeah. it's common the law, Fed. Right? It's, <laughs> so, so it's kind of like yeah. this, right? The, right. the, the, if you're the president, the, these people work for you. Yeah. You're not going to attack them publicly. You might take them to task privately. Uh, so certainly there's that, those changes. And then, I mean, I, th I think if you look at 2017, one of the conclusions I make in the book is I think there were more successes early on in the administration, the, enforcing the red line on Syria, def, you know, really putting a huge blow on ISIS, uh, making the right decision on Afghanistan. As now, you, once you get into 2019, you know, if if there really was a genuine peace plan for between the Israeli and the Palestinians, that's gone out the window. The China trade thing, who knows where that is? I mean, the, the every day kind of it's it's confusing, uh, and and the, it, part of confusion doesn't help because people, you know, one of the reasons we've seen some gyrations in the stock market is investors don't want a trade war between the United States and China, and if 
Uh, and then on the Iran deal, you know, we, you know, the Iranians are kind of enriching, not not at a high level, but they're they're back. Uh, balance against that, they're not financing Hezbollah in quite the same way because they're tight for money, and you've seen these riots in Iran now um, because you know where they put up the price of gas. So and you worry about escalation. You had made that point with Iran. Well, but I think you know one of the other takeaways from the book is that President Trump is very reluctant to use force, and I mean, good. I mean, yeah. I mean, because, you know, we, we've seen he hasn't made a big unforced error like George W. Bush, which was the invasion mm-hmm. of Iraq. Um, he hasn't, uh, you know, he's he's been careful not to escalate with the Iranians. I mean, it got to a point where there was a military operation. The planes were leaving. He, he pulled them back uh, several months ago. He, he um, you know, he's he wants to draw down in Afghanistan. He wants to draw down in Syria. Um he is being careful to avoid some kind of military confrontation with the North Koreans. Yeah, talk about that for a second. Yeah. Denuclearization, yeah. any chance there? I, mean, I, I don't think there's a chance at all. Of, of the, I mean, it means two different things. When we talk about denuclearization, it means him giving up his weapons. When they talk about denuclearization, it means slightly different things. It means, like, we'll take our nuclear weapons out of that theater. Um, we'll have a peace agreement which means that our troops will leave South mm-hmm. Korea and 28,000 troops or whatever it is that we have there I mean we're talking past each other uh, even though I'm sure there's North Koreans know what we mean and you know when you're a new, when you're a dictator you know when John Bolton talked about the Libya model when it very came to, dangerous right I mean the unintended th- signals well I mean I think he uh, that's what he meant I mean John Bolton's a smart guy when he the Libya model in his mind was like this guy will unilaterally disarm well when Kim Jong-un sees that, he thinks, well, there's a reason Gaddafi ended up dead in a ditch. It's right. because he got rid of his... He's got rid That's of his right. The regime <laughs> collapses. That's the last thing the North Koreans wanted, right? Right. And they, so they do not want to give... They, 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 the one thing they have is, nuclear these, is these nuclear weapons. So yeah. I don't think any... Nobody who follows North Korea thinks that they will give up their weapons. Now, could you imagine a situation where, you know, they freeze what they have in place, they allow some sort of more intrusive inspections or some sort of graduated release of sanctions, you know, maybe. But, I mean, that would take a lot of diplomatic art. And, of course, you also cover the Russians and yeah, the, yeah. Em- the embracing of the administration and the Russians. Yeah. Or certainly, as you assert, the president. And uh, yeah. much of that has been chronicled, and yet your analysis um, really ties back to Helsinki. Yeah. And y- you actually make the point that it has affected intelligence sharing arrangements perhaps with allied partners well that is what somebody told me i mean and of course it's hard for me to assess that independently but they, there is a concern um partners are concerned but they partners have no reason to disbelieve that trump and putin are close so that affects how they share intelligence with us and pe- some people inside the agency have also told me that um, they're much more careful about sources and methods, disclosure of thereof on information that's circulated, because they just they're concerned. Um, so there's been a kind of I wouldn't say a huge rift with the intelligence community, but I think there's. It turns out that uh, you know they 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 might not have loved Pompeo as a person, but they thought he did a good job at the CIA. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't endorse any of the kind of pro-Russia stuff when he was at the agency. Um, you've now got 
uh, you know, the first uh, female leader of the agency. She's a CIA kind of lifer. Right. She's kind of just keeping her head down. I don't think she's, you know, she's a CIA professional. She's not, you know, she's kind of keeping out of. And I think that's the watchword for the community. I think yeah. you make those points. I mean, they're, they are keeping their head down, doing their yeah. job. Um, yeah, they, they, and they serve whoever the president is uh, selected. I mean, to me, a, you know, Dan Coates's a, a big inflection point was the the yearly intelligence assessment, where Dan, which overseen by then Office uh, D- Director of National Intelligence Dan Coates, he said he said the Iranians are keeping to the nuclear agreement, um, and that produced a kind of a rift with um, with with President Trump, and Coates is now gone. And that really led up to a remarkable kind of uh, inflection point when you started talking about a revolt of the generals. And I thought that chapter in particular went into granular detail on sort of everything unraveling. You talked about two general officers that I know, uh, (laughs) Admiral McRaven, of course, flag officers, Admiral McRaven and General McChrystal. And really, that's when you started outlining kind of an assessment of where the administration was and where where it became. So a big moment is, you know, CIA Director Brennan, uh, when he stepped down, was very critical of President Trump. The Trump administration threatened to take away his clearances. Admiral McRaven was on vacation, uh, I believe, in Wyoming. And Do you remember where that, when that was? Uh, roughly uh, in the it was the summer of 2018. Okay, uh, I think it was August 2018. Anyway, so he's McRaven is out in the middle of the wilderness yep. with like not, not much cell phone coverage or or uh, internet, and uh, he he finds sort of finds out that Brennan's sort of that Trump is attacking Brennan, and that they'd worked together closely. They were intimately involved in the Bin Laden raid. McChrystal was the architect of the raid. Brennan was the chief counterterrorism advisor to the president at the time. And uh, so he, and he so he called up an old friend of his who was a high school friend, uh, Karen Tumulty at the Washington Post. And he, he wrote probably the shortest op-ed in the, the history of the Washington Post. It's 235 words because he dictated it on the phone. And I mean, it did not pull punches. Uh, it essentially said, you know, you've embarrassed us in front of our children and the world. And <laughs> that was Admiral McRaven. That was Admiral yeah. McRaven. And then uh, several months later, um, McChrystal, General McChrystal, who was also, who'd found, who was a, who like McRaven, had turned Joint Special Operations Command into arguably the most effective military force of its size in history. Um, you know, he, he uh, went on an interview with Martha Raddatz of ABC News and basically, you know, criticized Trump very in quite personal terms for I can't remember the exact um, but basically saying that he's dishonest I mean uh, and uh, Trump started tweeting at him and calling him uh, you know uh, (laughs) so this was the beginning of what I say the revolt of the generals because you know these are two of the most uh, lauded military leaders of their generation and then of course oh go ahead and then of course you you know then you have you know, H.R. McMaster is already gone, essentially forced out because he never really connected President Trump. Uh, I think both on a, certainly on a personal level to some degree, but oh, they, they had policy disagreements. 
And and then, of course, Jim Mattis resigned in December of 2018 over Trump's treatment, in, in particular of the Syrian Democratic Forces. But I think it was more broadly, if you look at his resignation, I was more broadly about his treatment of allies in general, because Trump has certainly not been uh, particularly laudatory of allies like Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Canada. Uh, and in fact, he's been he's tended to be far more laudatory of traditional American antagonists like the Russians, the North Koreans. Um, and I think Mattis has had enough. I mean, he, well, I mean his, his resignation letter speaks for itself. So the generals basically uh, left the building. And then when Mattis left, John Kelly, who is Matt, Mattis and John Kelly are very close. I mean, they were going back to the, the Iraq War of 2003. Mattis was the Marine two-star in charge of the the operation going into Baghdad and his 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 one star who he gave a battlefield promotion he was Colonel Kelly then became one star General Kelly uh, was his number two going in and who was there one of their key colonels Colonel Joe Dunford who then became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs under both Obama and Trump so these guys had a very close relationship so when Mattis left Kelly left within a few days Mattis left mid-December of 2018 by the end of December Kelly is gone he was no longer on speaking terms with President Trump you can't be an effective chief of staff if you're not talking to <laughs> your boss in effect all your generals are really gone yeah and there's one outside influencer oh. and I appreciated hearing about that because uh. I knew General Keene yeah. who I'm referring to retired has some influence on the president but I didn't know the extent of it I didn't know it either but I and I, the way I characterize it is that he was he's in a way a shadow national security advisor because on on multiple issues whether it's afghanistan or on syria um you know jack Keane uh, is prepared to disagree with the president the president i in my book i point out that jack Keane was offered the job of secretary of defense not once but twice by president trump and both times for turned it down his wife had had long health problems then she died and he was trying to you know put together a new life and in, in both occasions, he said no, but he's been a very important outside advisor to the president. And of course, he's on Fox News, which means that he kind of advises him. He, he can get on Fox and the president's watching. And then also he gets called into the Oval to talk to the president. And so, for instance, on if you go back to the, dis, the decision in December 2018 to draw down to zero in Syria, Jack Keane is one of the key voices in Trump's ear saying, that isn't smart. Let's if you, you're basically handing the country to the Iranians, you're handing the oil fields to, um, to, you know, you know, we're going to lose our leverage in the in in the region, and and Trump changed his mind. Then he would change his mind again. Now he's changed his mind back. Um, but Jack Keane, I think, has played a very important role. There's been some policy reversals. You've made yeah. that point several times. Yeah, and you outlined that in the book. That's problematic, don't you think? I, I think it is because. I think in foreign policy, the, whether whether you're dealing with an ally or an enemy, they kind of want to know what your, you know, kind of what your red lines are. And if you're constantly changing, uh, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to deal with the United States if you don't know what the United States is going to do. Um, and I think you know one of the reasons the Chinese are dragging their feet on this trade deal is they're just. If, if Trump loses the election in 2020, um, you know, they'll just deal with the next person. Uh, and uh, I think probably that's where the Iranians are. And, you know, they, but our but our policy, Trump has, uh, you know, kind of been, 
mercurial about certain elements of policy on Iran, who he's threatened with a military strike, and then he said he'd talk to them without precondition. On Afghanistan, he's changed his mind about peace talks with the Taliban. We're going to stay there. No, we're going to withdraw. You know, it's it's back and forth. So it's, I think it's a puzzle. So that all leads up to some reflections that I was doing when I finished your book and as I went back through some of my notes. Yeah. The subtitle, The Cost of Chaos, is an yeah. open question. What is the cost of chaos? In some ways, toward the end of the book, and I don't want to spoil it, yeah. but you do address the fact that undermining the institutions is the cost of some of that chaos that has ensued. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, institutions do survive, and but you know, President Trump has certainly undermined the FBI, the CIA, the Federal Reserve, the only institution that he really hasn't really attacked is, is the military. And in fact, he's given them, you know, substantial budget increases, $750 billion in fiscal 2020 versus about $600 billion under Obama. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's not obviously not in my book because it's too current, but just this kind of back and forth about what to do with Gallagher, the SEAL who was accused of war crimes and the president intervening so often in, in his trial. The president has every right. The president could strip naked in the Pentagon <laughs> as commander in chief. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Does it mean that he uh, should do whatever he wants? No. The commander in chief has- It's within his authority. It's within his authority. He has wide latitude to do what he wants as commander in chief. Is it wise to be, you know, particularly with someone like Gallagher, who I think was credibly accused of some serious, uh, you know, the, should, he, should this guy retain the seal trident, which, you know, tens of thousands of people, you know, put a lot of effort in to get and then maintain, um, you know, and it just, it doesn't make sense for the commander in chief to be inserting himself in these kinds of issues. This should be just taken care of by the Navy, which has a whole process to do this. So I, you know, I don't think that, I mean, I do, you know, I do say that President Trump deserves credit for his China policy, which is a big, I think, conceptual shift and strategic shift. No, I'm not talking about necessarily kind of the back and forth on trade, but I'm saying identifying China as a peer competitor with which we have to contend as opposed to, well, you know, if we just do business with the Chinese, they're, they're going to liberalize and it'll all be fine, which is kind of the view of the previous administrations. Um, so I think Trump is right. He's pushed for much more freedom of nav navigation exercise in the South China Sea. That's a shift. And, you know, the national defense strategy written by Jim Mattis or overseen by him and the national security strategy overseen by H.R. McMaster uh, correctly point out that China is really our main peer competitor and we need to, and they've been ripping us off for years in terms of intellectual property theft and cyber attacks and you know trade agreements that, are, that kind of disadvantage, disadvantage us. And so that's all true. And I think that Trump is right to have been taking a stronger position on all that. But that said, I think in other areas, he, um, he, um, he having a confusing set of foreign policies is, doesn't really help us. I mean, I, look, Afghanistan is a country I know pretty well. I was there earlier this year. I mean, the Afghans are, they just don't know what to make of what we're doing because we, you know, we're having this peace deal with the Taliban, but we're not involving the Afghan government, which at the end of the day is going to have to live with whatever the agreement is. You make reference to the Coleman's. That's another positive, uh, the recovery of the Coleman's. Well, and now with King and Weeks, yeah. that might be a harbinger of peace and reconciliation. Well, King and Weeks were 
kidnapped from the American University in Afghanistan. One's an American professor, one's an uh, Australian professor, and they've just been released by the Taliban. Certainly, that's a confidence-building measure. Exchange of prisoners is a kind of classic confidence-building measure. When you're trying, so you know, maybe that will start the peace process or the negotiation process with the Taliban. That would be great, but it has to involve the Afghan government. It can't just be can't just be us dealing with the Taliban because at the end of the day, it's like a not our country. <laughs> so true. <laughs> So you, again, continuing on this idea of the cost of chaos yeah. and sort of your analysis and conclusions, yeah. um, it's a work in pro progress to be sure. The administration has another year yeah. um, minimum. You introduce a word that I didn't, I had never heard before. <laughs> Talk about usufruct. Am I even saying it right? <laughs> I, I think you're saying it right. And I didn't know what usufruct was either. And the reason I used it uh, was I attended, Jim Mattis wrote a memoir with Bing West, who's another Marine, mm -hmm. uh, very impressive guy and, and writer. And um, he did his first book event at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, which of course is the kind of like the Vatican of American internationalist <laughs> kind yeah. of, I mean, it wasn't an accident, right? It's, kind of, it's the most establishment kind of view of, and you know, Democrats run by Richard Haas, he's a Republican, but a kind of a never Trump type Republican. And so he gave a speech there, and he basically, about his book, which didn't take Trump to, pass, Trump, Trump to task directly, although it did take Obama and Biden to task. Um, and w you know, they, Richard Haas and he are having this conversation. At one point, towards the end, uh, Mattis introduces this idea of usufruct. Now, usufruct is the, is the doctrine that if you inherit, let's say, a piece of land from your parents, it doesn't really matter what you do to it as long as whatever you do to it is in better, as good shape or better shape when you hand it on to your son or daughter, and uh, and that was Mattis said this is a standard by which by which we should be looking at Trump. Now he didn't say where he came down. I think I know where he would come down based on his kind of implied criticism of the president, and certainly he resigned on principle. Um, but uh, so that's the big question. I mean, you know, my book is not a history; it's a more of a you know kind of a best. To first, uh, you know, it's like a first draft of history, um, an attempt to kind of make an assessment of what I think is probably one of the most significant presidencies of the, of the modern era in a lot of different ways. I agree. I, I like the way you just characterized that. I think it's a point of departure for understanding the Trump foreign policy yeah. and the actors that were involved. Yeah. As I said, I, I was a witness in some cases, <laughs> and I learned a lot from uh, reading through well, the book. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you. Um, so to transition a bit, just to lighten things up, I mean, you're ready to write another book now that you've got this done, right? Yeah, I can't tell my <laughs> wife that. <but laughs> no, uh, so the book gets released on December 10th. Yeah. We're really grateful here at the Spy Museum that you would offer us the opportunity to do your first really public foray with, with this book. Yeah. So thank you for that. What are you reading right now? What are you thinking about? I know you're getting ready to do some programs, I assume, on this book. But yeah. what are you thinking about? I think you're going to do some travel to Afghanistan in the future. Yeah. Um, well, my wife and I are making a film about the Afghan war for Showtime. Basically, home, the, the, the last episode of Homeland is set in Afghanistan this okay. coming season from okay. January to April. And so the Homeland producers approached us and the director, Greg Barker, can you do a 90-minute feature documentary about the Afghan war with an emphasis on the CIA that would kind of air at the same time? So we've been shooting that uh, over the, you know, right now. 
Um, and that has taken up a fair amount of time. Uh, so, but yeah, I have ideas for other books, but as a, uh, my wife would not <laughs> be a fan of those because uh, books take up a lot of time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you've laid a little bit low relative to your normal <laughs> schedule as you've been working on yeah. this project. Is there anything you would like to talk about that we didn't discuss here today? Or any last uh, thoughts or reflections on Trump and his generals? Well, that's a good, I'll make this point, which, uh, and I'm glad that we've had this discussion, Chris. I mean, you write the book and then you have to interpret it in like this to other people. And it's like, I'm so, you know, it's 300 pages. <laughs> it's a lot. But, and it's like, it's one thing to write it. That's one, and then you have to interpret it, which is a whole other thing. And so I'm, I'm grateful to have the chance to, this is like the first discussion that, that I've had uh, about it. So it's interesting what you, what you, what you picked out. Um, and, um, I, n I need to do some more thinking about kind of the key the key takeaways from the book. Um, but I do think one of them is Trump came into office. He was the first president with, without any who'd, any service in the military or who had never served in political office. Obviously, Obama didn't serve in the military, but he'd been a senator uh, from Illinois. Clinton didn't serve in the military, but he'd been a governor from Arkansas. Um, President Carter had been a governor and served in the military. And so, I mean, you go back, the further you go back, the more likely it is that everybody served in the military and, and had held public office. So he came in knowing very little about the outside world. And he needed, I think, these guys, uh, and they were all guys, um, to kind of basically A, inform him, and B, kind of buttress and sort of support and what he was doing. And you know the people that he recruited were was were some very impressive, you know, Mattis, H. Armour Master, John Kelly, Rex Tillerson. You know, in different ways, are all very impressive people. Uh, they're all gone now, and I think the people that have replaced them are are not having disagreements with the president. I mean, H. Armour Master, Rex Tillerson, Mattis, John Kelly were prepared to disagree with the president. I think this new group is not gonna disagree with him. And one of the reasons you get the July 25th phone call, the only person who disagreed with it is John Bolton. And and this mm -hmm. phone call turned out to be a mistake. Whether you think it's completely innocuous or whatever, it's, it's, it, 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 is, it is the professional civil, class, civil servants who are testifying right, as, you know, about this or regarded it as unusual that you would enlist a foreign power and try to tarnish a political domestic opponent. So I, I think one of the takeaways is that, you know, it, the, it, you're only as good as your team. And I'm not saying there aren't still one or two good members of the team now, but they are certainly at a different level than the first group of people he brought on. In a different kind of people, just a different crop. Yeah, and, they, and they're, they're acting or they're, you know, they're, or they're, like Mark Esper is a probably a perfectly competent guy, but he's not Jim Mattis. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mulvaney as chief of, acting chief of staff. You know, Jim Mattis, uh, 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 John Kelly was. You know, he was prepared to tell the president where he was, where he was, where he was wrong. I don't see Mulvaney doing that. So, so I think that, of course, you know, you know there, there are there are co one of the costs of getting rid of some pretty competent people is, you're not going to get the advice you don't want to hear. But often that's the advice you need to know. 
Well, listen, Peter, thank you thank very you. much for sharing your thoughts with our listeners uh, and for what you've done to contextualize terrorism and change national security thinking over the years. Okay. We thank you very much, Chris. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.